Um, we are so excited to have you all here today. Thanks for joining us at Homestead. We have been talking over the last few weeks um, about spiritual maturity. We've been in a series called Mature, and we've been talking about what it looks like to be a person of faith who is a mature believer, a mature Christian. We've been talking about what does that look like. We talked about um, consistency in our faith. We talked about the fact that a lot of times when we first start out in our walk of faith, it looks kind of like this. It's really, really highs and really, really low lows, and we're strong in our faith, and then we kind of totally walk away from it for a while. And the mature believer has less of those big ups and downs and more of a consistent walk of faith. There might be times where there's struggle, but our faith moves into consistency. We talked about whole life maturity how spiritual maturity also encompasses emotional maturity and relational maturity. And you love Jesus, but you also learn how to love other people and how to work on the stuff that keeps derailing you in your life. And so we talked about that. We talked about spiritual maturity means less of us and more of Jesus. That as we grow in our faith, that we learn that it's not about us and our lives become about building his kingdom and not our own. And then Jeff talked about how's your mouth? We talked about those of us that are spiritually mature should have control over the words that come out of our mouth, that we should use kind words, that we aren't just saying whatever comes to our mind, but we're using discretion. But more than that, that we're using our words wisely to build others up, not tear others down, and to edify the body of Christ and to edify one another. And then last week, we talked about Owning our faith. Does anybody remember the Greek word? Anybody remember it? Wrote it down? Hey, I heard a couple people say it. Episcopeo, that's right. It means that we own it. It's our job. It's now our duty that if we are followers of Christ, it says that to see to it that no one else misses out on the grace of Christ. It's now our responsibility and our job. And those that are mature in faith take on that responsibility to share the love of Christ with others. And this week, I want to talk about maturity from a little different angle. We've talked about the fact that time doesn't necessarily equal maturity. You can be a Christian for a long time and still be very immature in your faith. You can definitely be a grown-up baby. There, is, there are people who have been followers of Christ for a long time, and yet they are still like infants. They are still immature in their faith, that that is a possibility. But there's another caution that I want to focus on today. It's important that as we mature in our faith, that we don't lose the heart of our faith. We can know scripture. We can know all of the right things to say. We can know all of the right things to do. And we can still miss the heart of all of it. And Jesus gives us a caution to make sure that at the center of our faith burns a vibrant, alive love for him. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the very last chapter in the Bible, book in the Bible, sorry. The book of Revelation is a vision that the Lord gave to the Apostle John. It was the vision of the end of time. He was giving him a glimpse of heaven and a glimpse into the coming days. And it was written by John to a specific audience. It was written to the seven churches in the providence of Asia. And before it gets into the bulk of the vision of heaven, the Lord gives John messages to these seven individual churches. And he says, this is a message to the seven churches in Asia. Now, why these seven churches? There would have been more than seven churches 
in Asia at that time. But many scholars believe that these churches are representative of all the different kinds of churches that would exist all throughout time. That it was a cross-section and a glimpse into different churches with different personalities and different hearts and different things going on. And that we were seeing a representation of the beautiful tapestry of the kingdom of God. And that we could look and see ourselves reflected in these seven churches. Now, I have a side note, a nerdy Bible trivia side note. Ready? You might not care at all. But I love nerdy Bible trivia. So if you look at the order of these seven churches, it actually follows geographically exactly where those churches would have been. And uh, scholars say that there was a trade route that if someone was to grab a letter and walk and deliver it to every one of those seven churches, it actually follows the exact order of what they are written in in Revelation. Pretty cool little tidbit, right? You're pretty excited about that. You guys can all go home right now, now that you've received that word. Okay. I just thought that was interesting. So the Lord speaks directly to these churches before he goes into the bigger picture of Revelation. He commends them for the things that they're doing well, and he challenges them on the areas where they're not doing so well, which is beautiful in itself, right? We know this. God loves the church. He loves his church. It's important to him. It's close to his heart. And like a good father, he encourages them. He tells them, hey, you're doing this. This is really good. You're doing really good right here. You're doing great with this. I'm super proud of you about this. But here is the place that I want you to grow in. So like a good father, he shares the positive things he sees them doing. And then he points out the areas where they need to grow. So I want to start in Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, just to give us a little bit of background about what this portion of Scripture is about. It says this in verse 12, When I turned to see who is speaking to me, so this is John talking, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand. And a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid, for I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. We could go home right there, too. He is the one who holds the keys to death and the grave. Then in verse 19, he says, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So at the beginning of this chapter, God is giving John this really incredible picture. This picture of Jesus, the one who died and was raised to life, is standing in the middle of seven lampstands, seven candlesticks. Imagine if they were standing in front of you today, seven of them standing there, and that Jesus is walking among them, weaving in and out 
looking at these lampstands, that that's where he's standing. And in his hand, he's holding seven stars. And it says that those seven stars in his hand represent the seven angels of the churches, okay? So there's a couple schools of thought on this that, you know, we don't know exactly for sure what that means, but a couple of different scholars believe different things. Some believe that there is an angel, a specific angel assigned to each church. I kind of like that thought. I kind of like the idea that homes, we have our own angel. I feel like we should name it. We should have that each church has its own angel and that that angel is carried around in the hand of God And as he's watching the work of the church, at any moment, he can dispatch that angel because he's watching over the work. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So I kind of like that train of thought. Others believe that the angels represent the leaders of those churches, that God is holding those leaders in his hand and guiding them as he is watching how their light is shining. Others believe that the angels are a personification of the personality and ethos of each church. It's the heart and the community of each church, and it's held in the hand of God. Whatever is true, I love all of it. I love this picture that God is giving us because it shows us that God loves his church, and he is in no way disconnected from the work of it. That he is walking and looking at everything they're doing, that he is weaving among those lampstands and watching over what they're doing, and holding them in the palm of his hand. It's a beautiful picture. So let's keep reading in Revolution, Revolution, Revelation chapter 2. And it says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church of Ephesus. So this is who he is speaking to, this first church. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those who say they are apostles but are not. You have discovered that they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans just as I do. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. So here we see God speaking to the first church, which is the church of Ephesus. And we've been referring to the book of Ephesians all throughout this series. Jeff, even last week, encouraged you to go back and read it because Paul was writing a letter to the church in Ephesus when he wrote the book of Ephesians. This is the same church that this letter is being written to by Jesus. And the church of Ephesus was a strong church. This was an established church. These were strong believers. They had a lot going on. They were working hard. And God acknowledges their hard work, and he acknowledges their diligence. He says, hey, I see you. I see what you're doing. I see how hard you're working. I see all the things that are going on with you. They were patiently enduring incredible persecution and hardship for their faith. The church in Ephesus was suffering. They were dealing with incredible persecution because they were followers of Christ. 
It also says they were being very wise about not allowing evil to permeate their churches. And we've talked a lot about the teaching that was contrary to the gospel during this time that was trying to permeate the church that Paul over and over again warns them to keep out. We talked about the Gnostics who believed that you could love God so much with your mind and your heart that it wouldn't matter what you did with your body. And so they were teaching Christians that you can love God in your head, but then it doesn't matter what you do with your body and your actions. Because if you love him in your heart, that's enough. And Paul was diligent to say, make sure that doesn't creep into the church. Don't let that teaching get in there. And it says here that the Ephesians were doing a good job of keeping that out of the church. We also know that Ephesus was the location of the temple of Artemis. And that idol worship was a huge part of what was going on in the city. This week, I want you to write down in your notes, go read Acts 19. Because that talks about when Paul goes to Ephesus and starts preaching the gospel and people start getting saved. And what begins to happen is the people stop buying the false gods to bring into their homes to worship. And everyone gets in an uproar because the economy is actually changed because people aren't buying the gods anymore. So Ephesus had a whole lot going on. So we know this was the center of idol worship. So we know that there was all kinds of stuff happening there and that they were doing a good job of managing the condition of their city. It even says in Revelation, you detest the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know exactly who the Nicolaitans were, but it's a good theory to believe that they were people who had idol worship and there was sexual sin mixed up in their idolatry. And it says that they hated that practice and that they were strongly speaking out against it. So the church in Ephesus was busy. They were dealing with big stuff. And yet the Lord says that they were diligently looking at what was true and what was false and faithfully confronting those things. And God was really pleased with their diligence. He also says in verse 3, you've patiently suffered for me without quitting. These were not light-hearted Christians. These were people that were facing persecution and yet said, I will not quit. I will not give up. They were diligent in their suffering. These were people who were really devoted. They were a hardworking, faithful church. But then in verse 4, we see the challenge. He said, I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Other translations say this, you have lost your first love. The Passion Translation says, you've abandoned the passionate love that you had for me at the beginning. Now, God is telling them, listen, you're doing all the right things, but you've lost the heart behind why you're doing all of those things. You have lost your first love. Oh, man, is this a red flag to us as we talk about becoming mature in our faith because it's really easy the longer we serve the Lord, the longer we're living out this life of faith, to get into the routine of it, the habit of it, knowing the right things to do, knowing the right things to say, even knowing how to stand up for faith, and yet somehow allowing the center of it to go cold. And we lose our first love. This is so important. God does not want us to just go through the motions of coming to church and creating programs and attending events. As good as all these things are, if it's not rooted in a passionate love for God and a passionate love for people. 
Now, Jeff and I have been married for almost 23 years. Now, some of you are like, oh, that's so long. And some of you are like, babies, babies, you're just getting started, right? But I remember when we were young and it just met him and we just fell in love about 25 years ago. Now, I was in love with this boy. I Yes, I was. I... I met him, and I thought, oh, he's nice. And he started by bringing me candy in my, in my theory class. I mean, am I a 12-year-old that that was really what did the trick? He brought me candy. And I was like, hey, I think I'll marry this guy. But apparently, that's all it takes. So, oh, man, he started bringing me candy, and then we started hanging out, and I thought he was so funny. And then he started playing the piano for me, and then I was, like, weak in the knees. I was like, oh, my goodness. And then we started dating, and we, um, I lived in downtown Minneapolis, and so he would have to drive my Jeep Cherokee because I could not parallel park it in the city. So he would drive my car, and then after we would go out on a date, I'd get in the car and I'd be like, oh, the seatbelt smells like him. And I would just like sniff the seatbelt, like, oh, it still smells like him. Oh my gosh, like, oh. And then he had made a CD with our, our like touring group at, um, at our college. And there was a little point in one of the songs that he had this little solo in the background. And I'd have my Walkman on with my CD in it and my little headphones. And I would listen to that 30 seconds of his solo. And then I'd rewind it again and I'd push play again. And then I'd rewind it again and push play again. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, he sounds so good. He sings so good. And I was just gaga crazy in love with this boy. Now, after 23 years, let me tell you, I still really, really, really love my husband, but I am not smelling his seatbelt anymore. It is not happening. I'm not, I'm not like, oh, he was here, I smell, I'm almost like, oh, he was here, I smell the, oh, uh, okay, right? I still love him, but I'm not sniffing his shirt anymore, right? We have settled into this life. We have settled into this routine of commitment and dedication. We have built a life together. We are dedicated to each other. We are committed to each other. We are working together to build a family. We choose to honor each other by staying faithful and committed to our marriage. But we have to consciously make sure that we just don't get stuck in the routine of our life together and that we keep the heart of our marriage alive. Now, when we were young, we did not have to work at that. It came very naturally to us to be obsessed with one another. But time and routine and tough stuff and conflict, and you go through it, and pretty soon, if you are not purposeful, you can find yourself like, we're just kind of going through the motions here, and you lose the heart of it. Now, this is the true in our faith as well. Think about when you first found Christ. When you first discovered the gospel, when you first realized that Jesus was going to set you free from your sin. Maybe you grew up in church and you can't remember like a big moment, but maybe there was a time when God did something significant in your life. And you remember back that moment and the fire inside of you, God spoke something to you. He did something in your life and you remembered that. Remember the times that God was fresh in your heart. Your faith was so on fire. You told everyone about Jesus. You couldn't stop talking about what he had done in your life. And for all of us, we have that initial fire inside of us. But over time, we can see the fire begin to dim and diminish and get smaller. And yes, there are people that the fire completely goes out and they walk away from faith. 
But what God is saying here is, hey, I'm, your fire hasn't gone out. You're still serving me, but it's just an ember. It's just small. It's not providing any warmth or any light. I think the biggest heartache are the ones who just keep that flame at a low flicker. We still do the right things. We go to church. We serve. We check the boxes of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Yet there's no fire. There's no heart. There's no passion. Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus takes the time to point this out. It would be really easy to look at this and say, oh, my goodness, Jesus, you're being really hard on these people. Like, they're doing it. They're, they're doing the work, right? They're working hard. They're standing up for you. They're enduring persecution, right? What does it matter? They are literally being persecuted because of their faith and enduring all that is involved there. Surely that is enough. But what, so what if they're not passionately in love, right? But Jesus does care. He does care. Imagine that if I went to Jeff and said, I feel like there's no love in our marriage. And he said, well, I don't know what you want. I'm here. I'm showing up. I'm coming home every night. I'm still taking care of the kids. Isn't that enough? Let me ask you that question. Is that enough? Will that sustain? Will that endure? No. We all know that. The works without the heart will not sustain our marriages. And the works without the heart will not sustain our faith. If we're doing all the right things and saying all the right things, and yet there's no fire behind it, it will not endure. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. God says, I want you to love me with all your heart. And then Jesus repeats it when he's asked, what is the most important commandment, the most important thing to remember? He repeats that commandment. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Notice there that he doesn't say, you must serve the Lord your God with all your heart. He doesn't say, you must talk about the Lord your God. He says, you love him. And look at the things with your heart, soul, and mind. Those are all internal. He doesn't say, love the Lord with your hands, love the Lord with your lips, love your Lord by how, where you're going and what you're doing. He's saying, love the Lord with what's inside of you, your heart, your soul, your mind. Loving God is important. It's so important that verse 5 tells us that there will be a consequence if they do not get this right. He tells them there's going to be a consequence if you don't get this right. And it says this in verse 5. Look at how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. Each of those churches represented a light that was shining out into the world and the community. And he says, if you don't get this right... I am taking away your light. I am taking away your influence. I will take away the light that shines out. It's that important to him. He's saying, you will not just say and do the right things. If you don't love me, you will not light up your community. This is a big consequence if they don't get this right. 
And Jesus says, if you don't get your heart right on this, I will remove your light. If we are a church who is without love, we will lose our influence. If we are a church who doesn't love Jesus, we will not shine light into our city. We might exist. We might be full of people who come and go and can say all the right things and do all the right things, but there will be no impact. Our lampstand will be removed and our light will not shine. And you think about that. Think about the churches out there that you know of, that everybody comes and they're doing all the stuff. And yet you're not seeing lives changed. You're not seeing people come to faith. You're not seeing the light shining out in the community. This is my number one fear, that we would be a church that just, we all really have a good time together. We enjoy each other's company. We even, we even do all the right things. We even know the Bible. And yet there's no impact in our lives and from our church. And he says that comes from loving me. If they don't get this right, their lampstand will be removed. Now, this is a collective rebuke for the church, but let's remember what the church is. It's made up of us, of people. And that means if we're going to be a a church who has a deep, fiery love for Jesus, we have to be individuals who have a deep, passionate love for Jesus. The church had lost its first love because the people had lost their first love. So what do we do? How do we get it back? I don't want our lampstand removed. I don't want Homestead's lampstand removed. I don't want my life. I don't want it to be removed. So how do we get it back? Well, John tells us three things right here in the scripture. Number one, we need to remember. Verse five says, look at how far you've fallen. Other versions say, remember how far you've fallen. We have to remember. We have to remember what it was like when we first came to Christ. We need to remember all the things that he's done in our lives. We need to remember the passion we had for him and his word when we began our journey of faith. It's just like when you go to a a wedding with your spouse, right? You go to a wedding with your spouse and you're watching this young couple up there and they're saying their vows. And inevitably, I kind of start looking over at Jeff like... Oh, you remember when we were like that? And I start thinking about it, and I always grab his hand, and he gives me the obligatory, like, yes, we're, I know what we're doing now. We're remembering all of the things from when we first fell in love. You go to a wedding, and you watch a young couple starting their journey, and it reminds you of when you started your journey. And there's always a moment that I look at them, and I think about those days, those early days, and then I start thinking about the rest of our life together. And I think about... The hard times, I think about the days when we watched our son in the hospital and the moment that we weren't sure he was going to live and locking eyes with my spouse and being like, okay, we're going to have to go through this together. I mean, I start reminiscing of all of the things that we've been through, the good times, the hard times, and I start remembering our life together. And inevitably, by the end of the wedding, I'm like, I love you so much, (laughs) right? Because something happens when we remember Something happens when we rehearse those things, when we think about those things, when we remind ourselves what we have been through. And in the same way, we need to, re- we need to remember what Christ has done for us. We need to remember, starting with salvation, we need to wake up every morning on our face remembering we do not deserve the grace we've been given. We do not deserve the kindness he has shown us 
He came and he took on our sin and he died for us. We don't deserve it. That's the best place to start. And then I think of all the times he's heard my cry when I was lost and I didn't know what to do and my kids were struggling and we were fighting battles and he always heard my cry and he always came and he always brought comfort and he always brought wisdom. I stop and I think about how he has led us, how he has always gone before us and showed us the way to go. When I stop and remember, I feel the fire begin to grow in my heart. When I remember, it's like those flames are fanned and we begin to understand and remember what God has done in our lives. This is why we are to offer a daily practice of gratitude. This is a daily fanning of the flame to stop and say, I remember, Lord. I remember what you've done. I remember how good you've been to us. When we remember all he's done, our hearts can't help but burn with love for him. So the first thing we do is remember. Second, it says in, to repent. We see that Jesus tells them, you need to repent for your lack of passion for Jesus. He says in verse 5, if you don't repent, I will remove your lampstands. This shows us how big of a deal this is. He doesn't just say, hey, you've lost your first love. Can you just try harder to fix that? He doesn't say, hey, don't, can you just feel bad about it? He says, he doesn't gloss it over like it's some small thing because of the word he uses there is repent. Repent is a verb, and it means to humble yourself, to admit you've been wrong, to ask for forgiveness, and then turn around and do it differently. The dictionary defines repentance as to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. We are to repent of our lack of love. This is a big deal to God. And you'll notice that losing our first love encompasses both a lack of love for God, but it also is a lack of love for others. Verse 4 says, you don't love me or each other as you did at first. And the reason is that these two things are intrinsically connected. Our love for God and our love for others. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they've seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. So we have to repent of our lack of love for God and our lack of love for others. So we remember, we repent, and lastly, we return. Revelation 2.5 says, look how far you have fallen. Turn back to me and do the works that you did at first. He says, go back to the way you were at the beginning. We do the things that we did at the start. I want you to think about a time in your life that you were most passionate about Christ, that you were most in love with him, that there was a fire was just burning the biggest part you can ever imagine. When was that? Now think about what were you doing? What were your daily practices? Were you getting up early every day to spend time in his word? Were you talking about him all the time to people that you would meet and sharing your faith? Maybe you were just fully walking in the spirit. You were just, when you felt the Holy Spirit impress on you to do something, you just did it. You just said it. You'd go up to somebody, I don't know, this might be crazy, but I just feel like I'm supposed to pray for you. And 
And now you're like, ah, I might talk myself out of that, right? But what were you doing then? Was that fire of the Spirit alive in you and you were just honoring God and doing whatever he told you to do? Maybe you were passionate in worship. You just, with abandon, sang to God and lifted your hands and from your heart were expressing your love for him. Maybe you fervently were praying for the salvation of people that you knew, the people in your neighborhood, the people in your family. You were just diligently seeking God for their salvation. It was just burning up inside of you. Lord, I just want to see these people come to faith in Christ. Maybe you just prioritize the house of God. I can't wait to get to church. I just want to learn more about him. I want to be with people that believe like I believe. I want to encourage each other. Maybe that was what you were like. Whatever it was, when were you hungry for the things of God? Whatever was happening in your life, whatever you were doing then, it says go back to that. Do that again. Go back to the former things. Return to what you were doing. And that's how you'll get the fire back. Now listen, I recognize as we get older, we express and we feel love differently, right? If Jeff and I were walking around here today and every time I saw him, I'm like, hi, there he is over there. You'd all be like, whoa, what's wrong with her, right? If I was walking up to him after worship, smelling his shirt, oh, there's Pastor Jeff again, right? You would all be like, that's weird, right? Because we express things differently as we get older. I get that. We talk about that all the time, like, we've got old love now, right? We've got old love. It's different. We express it differently, right? But here's the key. Only him and I know whether or not there is a heart of love going on in our marriage. You're, we might... Beyond, be different in how we express it. It might be different than when we were 23, but him and I know what's really at the core of our marriage. Whether we're co-camp counselors just taking care of all these kids, or whether we really love each other, whether we're really committed, whether we really have a heart of love. Only him and I know that. So the outward expression really is irrelevant. So I'm not talking about going back to those highs and lows that we talked about when you first come to faith, right? We're not talking about it's so visible to everybody and it's all out there. But you know in your heart what's really going on. And the same is true about our faith. You know whether your passion for Christ has grown cold. You know that. And only you and the Lord know that. I'm not going to be able to tell it because what did we see in the church of Ephesus? They were doing everything right. They did all the right things. They said all the right things. For me, if I was to look at the church of Ephesus, I would be like, this church has it all together. And yet God saw their hearts and said, you've grown cold. You're doing it all without love. So we have to get real honest and ask the Lord, What's going on in my heart? Is this maturity? Am I just a little different? Or is this indifference? Have I just stopped engaging in my faith? Your demonstration in worship might be different now, but is your heart growing even more passionate for the Lord as you remember what he's done for you? On the inside, is it growing? Is your love for his word continually growing? Or have you grown cold in your love for his word? Is your energy to serve the kingdom of God simply changing with age and as your life changes? Or have you really lost the heart to serve? And if you're honest, you're just more selfish with your time. I have to ask myself this question all the time because when we were young first in ministry, 
my goodness, we just stay up all night to get stuff done. And now I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. Can we order pizza? Like I just, and I have to ask myself, is that just natural? Or is the fire going out? I got to really be honest about those things and ask myself, Lord, are you asking me to do more? And I've just gotten comfortable and I really don't want to be bothered with more. We have to be honest about that. Do you look at those who don't know Christ and have a love for them and a desire to see them come to faith? Or have you just grown cynical about God being able to change people And you mostly find yourself frustrated and angry at people who are not saved and are behaving as unsaved people behave. How do we view the world? Jesus loves our world. Those are people he wants to know him. We have to be real honest with ourselves about whether or not we've allowed our love to grow cold. And if we have, we need to return to the things that we used to do. Open up your Bible again. Get up early. Drag yourself out of bed. Make a cup of coffee. Light a candle and say, okay, Lord, here I am. I'm making an effort. Start praying for someone that you know you want to see come to faith. Start praying diligently for them. Make it your passion to pray. And then ask God, how do you want, do you want me to talk to them? Is there, can I invite them to church? Focus in on someone who needs Christ. Maybe take a step of faith and go out on a limb. Maybe go talk to that person and say, can I pray for you? I just felt like the Lord told me to pray for you. When you feel that nudge, don't talk yourself out of it, but go back and do it. Step out in faith. Maybe it's giving of your time and your energy and your resources and saying, okay, I got I to gotta engage back in this thing again. Return to once you once did, and you will see your passion return. I completely relate to the church in Ephesus. I feel empathy for them. Because time and struggle and hardship have a way of dulling us and really squashing our passion. I feel for them. These people were going through it. And yet that wasn't an excuse. Jesus held them accountable for their hearts, not just their works. With all my heart, I want to get to the end of this life, a blaze for Christ, passionately in love with him, passionately serving his kingdom. I have been thinking so much about that sermon Jeff preached a few months ago about Caleb when we were talking about going into the promised land, that Caleb was the last one, and right before they were taking all the territory, there was one last army to fight, and everyone else was like, oh, we don't want to fight any more armies. And Caleb, the 100-year-old person who had been there through all of it, was the one standing in front of him going, we can do this, let's go. And Jeff talked about making sure that we don't erode our faith with time. I want a Caleb's spirit that at the end of my life, I'm just as passionate for Christ as I was at the beginning. A few years ago, I went on a missions trip to Panama, and I went with a women's organization, and uh, we were going into high schools and doing assemblies with teenage girls, and it was like a 10-day trip. And so I had gone on this trip, and it was just amazing, and we were preaching in schools and just seeing tons of girls come to faith. And um, when we got back, the next Sunday, I was filling in leading worship at another church, And so I walked into this church, and I really didn't know that many people there. 
And this little old lady with gray hair came up to me. And she said, how was Panama? And I'm like, good. Like, did I know you? How did you know I was in Panama? And she said, I so wanted to go on that trip. I so desperately wanted to go on that trip. But I'm 80 years old. I knew that I couldn't do it. So I called the district office, and I got your itinerary. And I kept it in front of me. And I prayed everywhere you were, as if I was in the room with you. And I was praying that those girls would come find Christ. And I was praying that there would be great fruit from your time there. And I was so humbled because I thought, man, she prayed more than I did and I was in the room. But her heart for the Lord and to see people come to faith was so passionate that even when her body could not carry her to the mission field, she was determined, I'm right there. I'm praying. I'm praying for this school. Now I'm praying for this one. And she, she acted as if she was there. I want that kind of fire in my life. I don't want my lampstand taken away. I don't want to live a life that looks good. And at the end, it didn't matter. It didn't change anything. It didn't, it didn't light up my city. I know all the right things to do. I've been around church long enough. I know all the right things to say. I know all the right things to do. And yet I want my heart on fire for the things of Christ. The place that only he knows. That it's ablaze with a passion for him. That those flames are getting bigger the older I get. The more mature I get. Those flames are getting bigger and my light is shining brighter. And if we all do that, I want you to imagine what kind of light will come out of this church. If we all do that. I don't want the Lord to take away our lampstand collectively or from me alone. And so he says, the first thing we have to do here is repent and say, Lord, we've let our hearts grow cold. And we need to remember what God has done and return to the things that we did before. So as we close this time today, I want to just give us some time to ask the Lord, where's my heart? Show me. Is the fire for you still burning or has it gone cold? We're going to just take some time. And I would encourage you, you can stay right where you are, but these altars are open. You know, a posture of repentance is kneeling. And so for me, there's something about repenting and kneeling and saying, God, I've lost my first love. And I repent and I tell you, I'm sorry for allowing it to go cold. And I want you to ignite the fire in my heart again. We're going to just spend some time praying. And then I'm going to wrap it up in the, at the end. But let's just take a few minutes. Ask God to search your heart. And then we'll close in a couple minutes. So Jesus, we come to you now, Lord. We are asking that you would reignite the fire in our hearts, Lord. Father, we repent. We repent, we admit that we've allowed our hearts to grow cold and we're asking that you would come 
and you would relight that flame and that, God, you would begin to pour gasoline on it, Lord, that you would begin to light that fire, that it would grow, that it would burn, Lord, that we would have a new hunger for your word. We would have a new hunger for the lost, Lord, that we would thirst for righteousness. We would no longer settle for just going through the motions, but God, that we would ruthlessly get things out of our lives that aren't pleasing to you, that God, we would just stop playing around, that Lord, we would fix our eyes on you and that you would fan to flame the flicker in our hearts, God. We remember how good you've been to us, Lord. You are worth it. You are worth every level of devotion. And Lord, we don't want that erosion of faith to make us grow cold to the things of God. We don't want to just know the right things to say and do. Lord, we want it pouring out of a heart, a blaze for you and for your kingdom. So Lord, I pray that even this week, you would just begin to fan the flame in every heart. Lord, show us the places, how we can return back to where we were, Lord. Maybe it is a love for your word. Maybe it is speaking out. Maybe it is praying for someone. God, whatever it is, we will obey. We are asking you to show us how to fan that flame. Lord, we want to be passionate for your kingdom. And Lord, I pray for our church. Lord, we want our lampstand not removed, but God, shining brighter. Lord, shining out into this city of people that are lost and broken and hurting and don't know where to look. Lord, I pray that this place would be a city on a hill and it would shine so bright for you, Lord, that people would be drawn in and that they would find you. But we know that only happens if we keep our hearts right before you. We can't just do the right things and have the right programs, God. We have to love you. So we're committed to that. Thank you for your graciousness that you tell us you forgive and then you help us to walk rightly. So, Father, we're asking that you would lead us this week. We love you. We worship you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to just keep the front open. If you want to stay and pray, you can do that. Otherwise, we will see you next week. God bless you. your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great are you Lord all the earth will shout your praise our hearts will cry these bones will sing great your breath in our lungs so we pour out our praise pour out our praise it's your breath in our lungs 
So we pour out our praise to you.